God, we thank you uh, for the gathering of your people, um, Lord, here at Pennington Park, where we can come under the banner of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can bring our burdens and our requests to you, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you care. God, we want to lift up the Hartman family to you, John and Dana and Reese. Um, Lord, Dana was uh, rushed to the ER last night and has an important surgery uh, today. Uh, she has developed pancreatitis and an obstruction in her bowel. And so, God, we, we pray for this family. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would um, ease the pain, that you would be with the doctors and the nurses today. And, Lord, we pray for a successful surgery, uh, that you would, um, Lord, just bring favor upon that operation today. And Lord, more than anything, we do pray that you would sustain their faith during this time. Lord, that they would lean not on their own understanding, but that they would be trusting in you. We pray that you would silence their fears with, um, Lord, just how, how tangible your presence can be. So we pray, Lord, that you would minister to them by your spirit. God, as we turn to your word, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that Jesus is king, that Jesus is on the throne with all power and all authority. Lord, that, that would be something that we believe not only in our minds, but in our hearts so that it reshapes how we think about our problems and the burdens that we carry. And God, I pray that you'd use this time um, to encourage us and to challenge us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Joshua Bell uh, emerged from the DC Metro and positioned himself against a wall. Now, by most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long sleeve t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball hat. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he threw in a couple of dollars and pocket change as seed money, and he began to play. For the next 45 minutes in the DC Metro, Joshua Bell played Mozart as over 1,100 people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. If they would have, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist that he is. They would have noticed the violin that he played, worth over $3 million. This was a project arranged by the Washington Post, who, quote, says this, that this was an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste in an ordinary setting at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? See, just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out the Boston Symphony Hall, and those seats went for over $100 each. And yet in the subway here, Bell garnered only $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. See, Bell's beautiful music was hidden in plain sight that most hardly recognize the beauty of this music because of the context, that the setting in that subway was so unfamiliar that all these people that walked by, they, they heard the music, but they didn't really hear the music. That the 1,100 people that walked by, they missed an opportunity to be captured by the beauty of this music, not because they didn't like music, but because they were not ready to hear it and receive it. Now, what does this have to do with us starting a new book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians? Well, I, I fear that at times we do the very same thing with God's word. 
God's word that was written centuries ago in a context, in a setting that can feel so unfamiliar to us with uh, such a distance to us that sometimes we can experience the same danger as the people in the DC Metro of not hearing the beauty of God's word being played. And it's not because we don't love God's word. Of course we love God's word, but because there is a danger among God's people when we're not ready to hear it and receive it because the context here can be so unfamiliar to us. See, in the same way that there was a huge difference between the Boston Symphony Hall and the DC Metro, there's a huge difference between Corinth in the first century and Fishers, Indiana in 2020. And yet, I want us to be a people who are so ready to hear and receive what God has for us as we go through this book of the Bible, probably over the next two years, because we are so familiar with the setting and the context and what was happening in the first century that we don't miss the beauty of God's word being played in our hearts and our minds. And so what we're gonna do today is we're really just gonna look at the setting and the context. We're gonna look at some key themes and some key problems happening in the church so that we can kind of set the table for the next several months so we can just dive in and feast and not miss what God has for us. All right, so let's start with Paul's relationship uh, with Corinth. Let's first look at these first couple of verses here because it tells us a lot about this letter. If you look at verse one, uh, we are told who the author of 1 Corinthians is. It is the apostle Paul. But if you notice there, there's another individual named. His name is Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was the chief ruler of the synagogue in Corinth when Paul showed up and started to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was a situation that took place there at the synagogue where a bunch of these Jews wanted to, uh, uh, wanted to beat Paul because the Jews are starting to convert to Christianity. And it was Sosthenes who stood up to this mob and started to follow Paul. Well, he was actually beat instead of Paul. And so now he's hanging out with Paul in Corinth as they write this letter. If you look at verse two, it tells us that Paul is writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, there are a few things that we need to know about Corinth, and these are really important. Corinth was a city, it was a Roman colony, and it was incredibly wealthy. It's really hard to exaggerate how wealthy this city was. And it was wealthy for three reasons. Number one, it was a prosperous manufacturing hub with a ton of natural resources. But secondly, it was a popular tourist destination. It was kind of a, a hot spot with all kinds of attractions that people would travel to in order to experience. And then thirdly, it was strategically located. In fact, Corinth had a strategic trading center that was located in the southern province of Greece. And in fact, a, a route went north from Corinth to Macedonia, and then you had these sea routes that went east, west, and south. Now, I share that with you, not because I'm expecting you to be historians this morning, but because Corinth literally stood at the crossroads or the intersection between north and south, east and west for business and trade. This was the city that people wanted to be at in order to become wealthy and in order to become known. 
fact, in Paul's day, Corinth was a busy, bustling, cosmopolitan business center that connected Asia with the world in the West. And it was incredibly wealthy. Well, it was not only known for its wealth, it was also known for its immorality. And we're going to look at, at this in depth throughout this letter, so I won't belabor the point. But just to say this, that the word Corinthian was synonymous with to commit fornication. That they would literally say, oh, you're Corinthizing, which meant you are committing fornication. That's how immoral this city uh, actually was. Now, despite it being known for its wealth and for its immorality, religion was everywhere. This was a religious melting pot with the older and the newer religions flourishing side by side, allowing the people here uh, to choose from this enormous cafeteria line of religious practices. In fact, historians uh, make a comment about that. They describe that there were at least 26 different places of worship or different temples in order to worship various gods. Like there were no shortage of choices for the people living in Corinth. They could choose from the mystic religions in, from Asia and Egypt uh, to the Roman cults, to the Greek gods and goddesses, and, and even some religions that were picking the best aspects from all of them. Okay, so it's wealthy, it's immoral, and religions all over the place. When you take a step back, though, and you identify what are the cultural values of Corinth? What was the air that they breathed? Well, it was centered on self-achievement, self-promotion, self-sufficiency, and self-satisfaction. If you lived in, Cor in Corinth, it was all about climbing the social and the business ladder, making a name for yourself, being successful, and experiencing as much pleasure as possible. And while you do all those things, tolerance was the king, that you were tolerant of all lifestyles and of all religious beliefs. Now, does this sound familiar or what? Right? This sounds almost identical to what we experience here in our context. I found uh, one commentary described uh, Corinth this way. It said, perhaps no city in the Roman Empire offered so congenial an atmosphere for individual and corporate advancement like Corinth. Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world combined into one location. Okay, I think that's a good visual as far as thinking about kind of the setting and the context of what the apostle kind of shows up and he's like, I'm gonna plant a church right there. And I think the majority of us would look at Corinth and be a little bit intimidated to walk in there and start to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in this kind of context. And yet that's exactly what the apostle Paul does. And so looking at Paul's relationship with Corinth here, Acts chapter 18 provides all of the background that I think is needed. And in fact, if you have time today or throughout this week, I encourage you to read Acts 18. It provides the color to what Paul kind of stepped into. What we can gather is that Paul showed up in Corinth on his second missionary journey from Athens, and he spent about 18 months trying to plant a church in Corinth. Paul's strategy was to first go to the synagogue and start to engage with them in conversations about Jesus. And he did this while staying with Priscilla and Aquila, who were fellow Jews and fellow tradesmen. 
and they just started to share the gospel with people. Now, the response was that uh, there was lots of opposition towards Paul, uh, uh, the example of Sosthenes and that whole uh, mob that, that beat him. But there were also a lot of converts, a lot of people coming to faith in Jesus. And so over the 18 months that Paul stayed in Corinth, he planted this church, he got it up and running, got everything in order. And then Paul went back to, uh, to Ephesus. And while Paul was in Ephesus, a man named Apollos, who we're going to get to know in chapter one here, shows up in Corinth and, and he begins trying to help build up this church. Apollos was a phenomenal preacher, dynamite preacher, and he's trying to encourage the church at Corinth. Well, he leaves Corinth and he goes back to Ephesus where Paul was, and he gives a report on how this new church was doing. And the report was so disturbing for the apostle Paul that it led Paul to writing one of four letters to the church at Corinth. Now you might be wondering, well, pastor, I only have two letters in my Bible. Why are you telling me that there are four? Well, there are four because two of them uh, were not preserved in the canon of the New Testament. They were lost to us. But reading 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, um, we can safely assume that there were two other letters, at least, that Paul wrote to this church. The first letter, known as the previous letter, was in response to Apollos' report. And we don't know exactly what was contained in that letter, but we can uh, safely assume that Paul really leaned heavily into the sexual immorality that was going on in this church, along with covetousness and idolatry. And so after that letter, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, which is technically the second letter, and he wrote that from Ephesus. And then there's a third letter known as the severe letter. All right, this is where Paul was very direct uh, and really leaned into these issues that were present in Corinth. And then, of course, we have the fourth letter known as 2 Corinthians, uh, where Paul wrote uh, that from Philippi. Uh, Paul's relationship with Corinth was up and down. Um, he had a decent relationship to start until he started to speak into some of the issues going on in the church. This led Paul to visiting the church on two different occasions uh, after the first Corinthians was written and then second Corinthians was written on the third missionary journey. Now I share this with you because I think understanding Corinth as this successful, wealthy, influential, gifted, image-driven city helps us to understand the problems that were going on in this church. But the main problem here is that the culture surrounding this church was infiltrating the church at Corinth. The problem though, is that the way that the culture was infiltrating the church here was it wasn't showing up to the church and saying, hey, uh, you need to adopt this mindset. This is going to negatively impact your church. It wasn't doing that. The culture was masking itself as virtues to pursue. The culture here was masking itself as good things for Christians to adopt into the culture of the church and was causing all kinds of problems and issues. And this leads us to some of the challenges and problems that we're going to get to know. Paul predominantly writes this letter because of all of these various reports that he was receiving. He's receiving reports from Priscilla and Aquila, from Timothy, from Apollos. He even received a letter from the church at Corinth. And so he's writing to address all of these issues that were going on. 
And there were at least 15 uh, different problems in Corinth, okay? Problems all over the place that we're gonna learn and we're gonna get to know. And as you look at this list, I mean, they had problems related to divisions and disagreements. They had problems about worldly wisdom and immorality and gender roles in the church. They had problems with spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and what happens in the end times and Jesus's resurrection. I mean, they had problems left and right. In fact, there's kind of a, a running joke uh, among pastors today that if you get discouraged about your church, if you feel like you've got a lot of problems, just read 1 Corinthians to encourage you and you'll really get to know a church that had a lot of issues. And the challenge here for Paul is that all of these issues were, were multi-layered and coming at him at the same time. The temptation that you and I are going to face is that we're gonna look at these 15 problems and say, yeah, I don't really struggle with those issues a whole lot. A lot of those problems were first century issues and, and some of that is valid. But what we're gonna do throughout this letter is we're actually going to identify the issues beneath the issues. There were problems underneath these 15 problems that were generating some of these issues. In other words, these 15 problems are just symptoms, right? There are root issues that were causing these problems to come to the surface at the church in Corinth. For example, when we get to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, and, and we look at this problem of offering food and sacrificing that to idols, I guarantee most of us do not have that kind of problem, right? But when we look at the root issue underneath that, that will be deeply convicting for each and every one of us. And we're gonna be able to walk through each of those problems and each of those root issues and apply them to Pennington Park Church today. Look, what we find in this letter is a church that is wrestling with relevance and practical issues just like us. That some of the questions that they were wrestling with are some of the same questions that you and I face. They were wrestling with how are we to handle disagreements among God's people outside of primary doctrine. They were wrestling with, can you or should you legally sue another Christian? They were wrestling with what does sexual purity look like in a culture where sex is worshiped and where sex is an expression of one's identity. They were wrestling with in what ways does the gospel shape marriage? And in what ways does the gospel actually hold up singleness as just important as marriage? They're wrestling with, with what do we do when we gather as God's people and, and how do we do the Lord's Supper? And what are the spiritual gifts all about? What, what's this whole speaking in tongues thing about? How do we interpret the tongues? And, and what does this mean for us? They're wrestling with gender roles. What, what can men do? What can women do? Can they do the exact same thing in the church? And they're also wrestling with the end times, with the resurrection and Jesus's resurrection. And, and how do we think about when Jesus comes back? Look, you can, you can tell why I picked this letter, right? Not because I enjoy walking through landmines, but because I look at these issues and I say, man, like we wrestle with some of these same issues and the same questions. And so the question is, is where's the place where we can talk about them? Where's the place where we can ask real hard and honest questions if it's not here in God's word in the church? Because if we're silent on some of these issues that might be potentially divisive, the alternative 
is that each of us are going to be discipled by the society around us and by social media, and that's not a very good option. And so our approach as we walk through this book and some of these landmines is we're gonna be begging God for humility, we're gonna be begging God for wisdom, and we're gonna be begging God to give us an open heart and an open posture for him through his word, by his spirit, to shape us into being New Testament people of God. I love this letter. Uh, it feels like um, it feels like we're eavesdropping on a very intimate conversation between Paul and his church. And uh, look, I'm not a creeper, but it's it's almost like we're we feel like we're um, we're reading someone else's mail here, you know. And, and that's kind of the feeling that we get with a lot of these letters is that they're kind of going back and forth. And some of these topics are so fascinating and interesting. We're going to be wanting just to grab some popcorn and watch and see how the Apostle Paul handles some of these issues. And yet one thing can be said, and I say this with the utmost respect for the bride of Christ, for the church, but look, this church was a beautiful mess, right? This, this church, yes, it was beautiful because it was marked by the grace of Jesus, but it was a mess because of these problems and these issues and the way that they were trying to solve them. And just to let you in on a little secret, every church is a beautiful mess. Every church has issues and problems. We're, we're all sinners in this room. Like no one is perfect. No one has arrived spiritually. We are all in process. And look, that should produce in us and generate a real sense of humility as we think about ourselves and as we interact with one another. But we're also marked by Jesus. We're marked by his grace. We're, we're a people who, who stand together and say that the grace of Jesus has changed us. The grace of Jesus has done away with all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, so that we can be accepted before God. And that unifies us as we deal with the messiness of our lives and our issues. And so thinking through how this church at Corinth put those two things together, I think will be really, really helpful for us. Another thing that we need to know about this letter are some of the major theological themes. Okay, and I know when I use the word theological, like I'm kind of assuming that all of us are theologians, whether you know it or not. All of us have some type of understanding about who God is, and for some it's underdeveloped. But we need to understand what we're kind of getting ourselves into as we approach 1 Corinthians. There are four key theological themes that we're going to be exposed to. Number one, a high Christology or, or the study of the life, death, and ministry of Jesus. Of course, every letter of Paul's involves Christology. But here, this is really interesting. What Paul does with Jesus is he connects the death and the resurrection of Jesus to inform how we understand wisdom. He's going to contrast godly wisdom from worldly wisdom using the cross of Jesus. And that's going to be really interesting to see. He also talks about uh, Jesus in relation to what true love looks like, especially in chapters uh, 13, even in chapters 8 and 11. Uh, but we're going to get a healthy dose of Jesus as always. Secondly, another the theme that we're going to see is eschatology. Okay, it's just a fancy word for understanding the end times. Okay, what happens uh, when Jesus returns? What does that all look like? 
And uh, I know depending on your upbringing and the church that you might've grown up in, for some uh, eschatology is uh, deeply confusing or incredibly fascinating or both, right? And probably for the majority of us, we'd probably say it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. But this is a topic that I think has become very popular over the last couple of months as we look at kind of the landscape of our world, there is all kinds of unrest that we see both politically and racially and throughout the world. We have fires on the West Coast, we've got storms in the South, and, and it just feels like the Lord may not tarry all that, all that much longer. And so for us to kind of understand what does this look like? And, and then you kind of throw in this, this, uh, this vaccine that's coming. And, and some people are thinking, oh, that's definitely the sign of the beast. We need to avoid all that. And so, no, you're creating. And just it's raising this issue of how do we understand the end times? How do we understand all of those, all of those aspects? And so for us, as we kind of overhear Paul correcting the Corinthians' eschatology because it was over-realized, meaning that the Corinthians believed that they were living in the kingdom of God fully. thought that God had fully brought down his kingdom, which led to several issues. They denied a bodily resurrection. They were misusing the Lord's Supper. They were absolutely obsessed with the spirit and the spiritual gifts. They had a low view of marriage and so on and so forth that you can connect to their over-realized eschatology. And so Paul is going to correct, he's going to reshape their understanding of the end times with this already but not yet tension that we need to embrace. Paul again and again will say, hey, God's kingdom has already come, but not yet fully that you have been saved already, but not yet fully. And he's gonna connect all of these ideas to the already, but not yet tension. We'll learn more about that throughout the next several months. Thirdly, uh, another theological theme is ecclesiology or the uh, understanding of the nature of the church and how she functions. Look, because there was uh, an underdeveloped Christology the visible expression of the gospel in the local community in Corinth was deeply impacted. That because of how they saw Jesus, how they saw the cross, how they saw the resurrection, the people at Corinth were, were struggling to live out the gospel as they gathered together. So Paul is going to use two great images of the church to correct this. Image number one is he's going to talk about the church being the temple of God in chapter three. Paul's main argument here that we're going to look at is that the Holy Spirit no longer resides in the building or a place. The Holy Spirit resides in his people. And so he's going to be correcting some of the other religions, some of the other cults in Corinth, and also talk about that in contrast to the old covenant. And his push is going to be, because that's true, you need to live godly lives. And then secondly, the other image that Paul uses is that of the body of Christ. Chapters 10, 11, and 12. In fact, the word body shows up 46 different times across 34 different verses. Paul is going to be connecting things to the body of Christ all over the place. And he, he has two main points for why he's using this image. His first point is to say that there must be a, a, a unity 
not uniformity, but unity in the body of Christ because we are one in Jesus. All right, we've all been saved with Christ. And so there should be a unity that we experience. But his second point for using the body of Christ is that each member of the body, each person is essential. And so diversity, biblical diversity in the body of Christ is important. All right, so we are unified, but we have some differences here. And bridging the two together demands that we understand ecclesiology. In fact, Gordon Fee, who is, he's written one of the best commentaries on, on 1 Corinthians says this. He says that God has so arranged the body that all the members are essential to one another. That Paul's concern with this imagery is the concomitant or the, uh, the connected necessity of diversity. Rather than the uniformity that the Corinthians value, Paul urges that they recognize the need for all the various manifestations of the one spirit. Otherwise, there is no body, only a monstrosity. Okay, so we're gonna look and see what it looks like to be part of the body of Christ with differences within us. And from these two images, Paul is explaining the purpose of the gathering of the saints. How do we use our spiritual gifts? What do men do? What do women do? What do we do with the Lord's Supper? So there is a priority of order and not confusion. Now, fourthly here, the, the, the last theological theme that we see here is pneumatology or the study of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he has. Okay? Now, admittedly so, the Corinthians were infatuated with the Spirit. And so Paul is seeking to correct what does the Spirit do in the life of the individual believer and also corporately when the saints gather? In fact, the word spirit occurs the most out of any other word in this letter, occurs 56 different times across 42 verses. And it's uh, most of the time linked to the spiritual gifts. So those are some of the things that we're gonna be seeing. Look, I know that was a fire hose that you guys probably experienced just now, a lot of information, but here's why all of that is really important as we think about Corinth and our church today. Look, the Corinthian church, they were gifted. They were intellectually sharp. They were financially blessed. They demonstrated visible gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they lacked love and unity that was gospel defining Christ-exalting and cross-shaped. They had all these gifts and all these things that a lot of us would want. And yet the way that they related to each other was devoid of the cross of Christ. And it was deeply impacting how that church was displaying the beauty of Jesus. This church was a beautiful mess, just like every church. In fact, Dr. James Boyer talking about uh, the church today, especially in America, he said, if Paul were to write a letter to the evangelical Bible-believing churches of the late 20th century America, I believe it would be much like 1 Corinthians. Their world was like our world. The same thirst for intellectualism, the same permissiveness toward moral standards, the same fascination for the spectacular, and their church was like our churches, proud, affluent, materialistic, fiercely eager for intellectual and social acceptance by the world, doctrinally orthodox, but morally and practically conforming to the world. 
look, we need 1 Corinthians, not because we're exactly like them, but because if we don't heed the instructions that Paul lays out for us here, we will become like 1 Corinthians and maybe worse. And especially when you think about the, the cultural climate of our day and all of these issues that our society is going through, all of those things has revealed in many an underdeveloped understanding of what the true identity of the people of God should be. That for some, they've taken the Christian identity and they have intertwined it with some of the cultural values of our day and they're failing to detangle them. Some of the cultural values of individualism and consumerism and idolizing comfort and this, this unhealthy elevation of personal rights has become intertwined with what it means to be a follower of Jesus as part of his church. And so I think that this letter is going to help us detangle the two so that we can develop a conviction, a biblical conviction about our identity as the people of God and our relationship with the world around us. And I think we desperately need that in the day and age in which we live. And so as we just continue just to prepare our hearts for this letter, and we're gonna be in here for a little while, can I just ask you to do a couple of things? First of all, I just wanna challenge you to try to sit down and read this letter all the way through in one setting. Try to do that maybe a couple of times this week so you get kind of a big picture of what's going on. And then secondly, I would just ask you to pray. I ask you to pray and open your heart up to what the Lord might have for you in this letter. In fact, I just wanna encourage you to pray and just to ask God to prepare your heart to be challenged in these four ways. Number one, to prepare to be challenged to think eschatologically, okay? And I know that's a big word, but I would guess that there are very few of us that know how our understanding of the end times shapes how we are to live now in the presence, right? All of us would probably say, yes, we know Jesus wins, we know Jesus comes back, but all of the other details are a little foggy to me. And I think that that is deeply impacting how we live out the gospel today. Just to give you a little teaser, because uh, we're gonna unpack this throughout the next several months. But what if I told you that nearly every issue that we have with sin comes back to an underdeveloped eschatology? I truly believe that. And we're gonna learn and see uh, what I mean by that. All right, move on. Uh, secondly here, another way to pray is just to pray, ask God to prepare your heart to be challenged by what true biblical love really is. Of course, 1 Corinthians contains 1 Corinthians 13, kind of the love chapter. And yet I think Paul has written that and extensively on love because the Corinthians had knowledge and gifts and influence, but they lacked love. And I know for us, like we pride ourselves and making sure that our definition of love is different than the world's definition of love. And that's true. But I think as we go through this letter, we will be surprised by how much of the world and the culture around us has impacted what you and I mean by love. And I think we'll be challenged by that in a good way. Thirdly, another way to pray 
is to ask God to prepare your heart to be challenged with a renewed passion for church unity, to give proper focus to the unity of the church and the danger of division. And we've talked about this in the past, but look, we know disagreements are going to happen, right? Disagreements happen in every family. They happen in every church family. But the way that we handle our disagreements reveals our spiritual maturity. I think with an ever increasing amount of potentially divisive issues in today's world, we need a renewed urgency to protect the unity, not the uniformity, but the unity of the church by understanding what a cross-shaped and godly wisdom looks like, having a correct view of our own personal rights, and what being part of the body of Christ really means. The body of Christ meaning that all of us are individual believers who are one in Jesus. And because that's true, we are unified together under the Lordship of Jesus. And yet at the same time, there are distinctions and differences among us. There is a diverse makeup of gifts and personalities and spiritual maturity levels and ages and backgrounds and ethnicities. And trying to put the two together takes wisdom and humility as we live out the gospel. And then fourthly, the last thing, just to pray, and this is something that the Lord has been revealing in my own heart, but just to pray to be challenged to live a cross-shaped obedience. The cross of Jesus calls each of us to die, to die to our selfishness, to die to our sin, to follow the example of Jesus. And yet too often, and I know this is true in my own life, my obedience tends to be shaped by other things than the cross. It tends to be shaped by my feelings. It tends to be shaped by guilt or by fear or by trying to earn God's approval, which I could never do instead of being shaped by the cross of Christ. And Paul is going to say that it is the cross of Christ, which is the power of God. And so the cross not only saves us, but the cross actually shapes the way that we follow the Lord Jesus in our sanctification and our obedience to him. Look, I know that the church is hard. It's a hard place to be in sometimes. It's a messy place but I believe living in the power of the cross of Christ enables his beauty to shine in and through us so that we can be, by God's grace, a beautiful mess together as we pursue him. So let's pray together and just ask him to bless our journey through this book. God, we thank you and we praise you for the word of God. We thank you that it is trustworthy. We thank you that it is without error. So we can open this book up and we know that it is alive and active that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that when your word goes forth, it will not come back void. So Lord, we pray that you would bless our journey as we walk through this book. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts up by humility to be able to receive what you have for us. Lord, if it's correction, would you correct us? If it's encouragement, would you encourage us? God, I pray that Pennington Park Church would be a city on a hill Lord, that the watching world would look at us and that they would see something remarkably different in the way that we love one another. Lord, and that would be attractive to them, that they would seek to know Jesus more. So God, would you continue to conform each and every one of us to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.